bringing you the latest in tax credit news. This is Tax Credit Tuesday with your host, Michael Novogratik. The legislative challenges have been significant. We very much need the legislation. we got to produce housing. We're still in a very volatile industry. It's a challenging atmosphere for almost anyone. We can't get all these mixed signals and messages. If he doesn't have a bipartisan bill, nothing's going to happen. Alternative energy is still very expensive. Hello, I'm Michael Novogratik, and this is Tax Credit Tuesday. Today is Tuesday, April 3rd, 2012. I'm going to start this week's podcast with a review of a report released last week by the Government Accountability Office on Federal Tax Expenditures for Community Development. This GAO report addresses the New Market Tax Credit, Historic Tax Credit, and Long Housing Tax Credit, among other tax expenditures. I'll also share updates on two items from last week's podcast. First, the House's vote on the Republicans' proposed budget. And second, the Ways and Means Committee's vote on H.R. 9, the Small Business Tax Cut Act. In our Renewable Energy segment, I'll review a hearing that was held last week that discussed the effect of the expiration of various renewable energy tax incentives. I'll also examine a report that was issued by the House Committee on Oversight and Government Reform that was highly critical of the Department of Energy's oversight of the Section 1705 Loan Guarantee Program. In the Loan Housing Tax Credit section of this week's podcast, I'll discuss how state housing tax credit caps will be affected by the IRS's release of updated population estimates. I'll also discuss a rule change that HUD proposed last week, a rule change that's aimed at increasing the private development community's involvement in projects that receive funding from both the Low Income Housing Tax Credit and Section 202 and 811. In our historic tax credit section, I have an update on the historic Boardwalk Hall case and two state-level updates, one from Massachusetts and the other from Minnesota. And finally, in our New Market Tax Credit discussion, I'll discuss the updated allocation agreement template, as well as invite suggestions for topics to be discussed at Novogratz and Company's upcoming Spring New Market Tax Credit Conference in June in Washington, D.C. So, if you're ready, let's get started. In general news, we start with the Government Accountability Office, or the GAO. Last week, the GAO released a report about tax expenditures for community development. In its report, the GAO identified 23 distinct community development tax expenditures that were available in fiscal year 2010. These tax expenditures include the New Market Tax Credit, the Historic Rehabilitation Tax Credit, and the Low Income Housing Tax Credit. The report does not, however, discuss renewable energy tax credits. In its report, the GAO basically says that there's limited data and measures available for purposes of assessing the performance of community development tax expenditures. The report says that a key assessment challenge is demonstrating the causal relationship between community development efforts and economic growth in a specific community. As a result, the GAO says that policymakers have limited information about the tax expenditures that the GAO reviewed and about ways to increase effectiveness of the tax expenditures. Now, unfortunately, on page 42, the GAO again recommends that Congress should consider offering grants in lieu of tax credits. Now, of interest, the GAO did provide a draft of its report for review and comment 
to the directors of the OMB, Office of Management and Budget, the Secretary of the Treasury, and the Commissioner of the Internal Revenue Service, as well as representatives of three federal agencies that administer certain community development tax expenditures. The CDFI Fund's response is included at the end of the report and is worth reading. Particularly, I note that the fund continues to express, and I quote, strong reservations regarding converting the tax credit to a grant program. Of particular note, in CDFI Fund Director Donna Gambrell's response, she specifically recommends that the GAO give consideration to concerns raised by, and this is a quote, an NNTC Industry Trade Association. Now, as it has done in the past with other GAO reports, the New Market Tax Credit Working Group will prepare a response. In the meantime, though, I'd encourage you to visit www.nmtcworkinggroup.com for links to the group's previous responses, as well as the special report that demonstrates how the New Market Tax Credit outperforms a comparable cash grant program. In addition, in this report, the GAO contends that the design of each community development tax expenditure appears to overlap at least one other tax expenditure in terms of the areas or activities funded. Now, these overlaps are viewed by the GAO essentially as flaws, though many might see these overlaps as features. In this review, the Interior Department disagreed with GAO's contention that the historic tax credit overlaps with any other tax expenditures. The Interior Department also disagreed with the GAO's characterization of the administration of the historic rehabilitation tax credit as fragmented. Instead, the Interior Department said it was an example of joint administration that effectively draws upon the best resources of two federal agencies in a coordinated way to implement the law. Once again, one view is a flaw, another view is a feature. A copy of the GAO's report can be found online at www.novaco.com. Simply click on the Hot Topics button and then select the Tax Expenditures link. And if you're wondering about how the Low-Income Tax Credit is treated, well, the report notes that the Low-Income Tax Credit's budget function is not community development, but that it's commerce and housing. However, it's included in the report because the LHTC, while funding affordable rental housing activities, such investments are also eligible under the CDBG, Community Development Block Grant Program. And also, the report notes that banks may receive positive consideration under CRA requirements for investing in long-term tax credit projects. But all in all, I would say the report is probably agnostic to slightly favorable for the low-income housing tax credit. Turning to the House Representatives, last week, the House passed the House Republican Budget Resolution. The vote was 228 to 191. The House Republicans' Budget Resolution does depart in several ways from the Budget Control Act that was passed after significant partisan wrangling last year. These departures potentially sets the stage for another government shutdown standoff as we approach the end of fiscal year 2012 and the beginning of fiscal year 2013. I note that, that fiscal year 2013 begins on October 1st, which is about 37 days before the election day. Now, when Congress does reconvene in mid-April, as both the House and the Senate are on recess for two weeks, the House and Senate Appropriations Committees will begin the formal process of drafting spending bills for the coming fiscal year. And in a statement following the House vote on the Republican budget, Ways and Means Committee Chairman Dave Camp acknowledged the significant gulf between the House Republicans' budget resolution and the Obama administration's proposed 
fiscal year 2013 budget. Chairman Camp said the GOP plan, and I quote, could not be more different than the president's. Chairman Camp also pledged that the Ways and Means Committee will continue to work towards comprehensive tax reform. Now turning to the House Ways and Means Committee, last week the Ways and Means Committee approved H.R. 9, the Small Business Tax Cut. This bill was approved by a vote of 21 yeas, 14 noes. H.R. 9 would allow a business with fewer than 500 employees to take a tax deduction equal to 20% of their active business income. The measure would apply to businesses and business owners who pay their taxes at the individual or corporate level. And in remarks about the bill last week, Chairman Camp argued that the deduction would free up resources so a small business can invest, hire workers, and provide raises to employees. Opponents of the measure criticize it as misleading and poorly targeted because the deduction is not contingent on hiring or investment. Now, the committee's approval means the bill will now be sent to the full House for consideration. A particular note, at the hearing, Representative Neal noted the importance of considering tax extenders, particularly those that have already expired, and he praised the new market tax credit. Now, if you want to watch Representative Neal's comments, they are available on YouTube. Simply go to my Twitter account as I retweeted the New Market Tax Credit Coalition's original tweet that has a link to Representative Neal's comments. So I'll close the general news portion of this week's podcast with a couple of items. First, from the Department of Political Theater, Senate Majority Leader Reid is prepared to have a vote in the Senate on the Buffett Rule when the Senate returns from their two-week recess. As most of our listeners know, the Buffett Rule would impose a phased-in 30% tax on taxpayers who have income in excess of a million dollars per year. That's regardless of whether or not the income is categorized as capital or ordinary. Now, no one expects such a bill to pass the Senate, but it will force senators to go on record with respect to their position on the Buffett rule. And then also, on April 26th, we do still believe that the House Ways and Means Committee will hold a hearing on extenders. Now, the April 26th date is not official, but it is the expected date for the beginning of the hearing, and it's unclear right now whether or not the hearing will be one day or will need to be more than one day. And it's also unclear if it will be a hearing simply by members of Congress uh, testifying or if others outside of members of Congress will be asked to testify on extenders. I'll tweet and report in future podcasts as we know more details about this critical hearing on extenders by the House Ways and Means Committee. In Renewable Energy Tax Credit news, last week, during a hearing before a Senate Finance Subcommittee, Several participants in the renewable energy tax credit industry told lawmakers that the federal wind energy production tax credit should be extended immediately. Spokesmen for two turbine manufacturers, Leco Steel and TPI Composites, made the case for extending the tax credit beyond its scheduled expiration date at the end of 2012. The hearing was convened to examine how recent and pending expirations of energy tax incentives affect deployment of renewable energy technology. The outlook for an extension of the production tax credit is mixed. On the one hand, there is broad bipartisan support for an extension of the production tax credit. For example, a House bill seeking to extend the production tax credit 
was introduced, and it has 85 co-sponsors. Among those 85 co-sponsors, there's 18 Republicans. Similarly, a Senate bill to extend the production tax credit was introduced on March 15th by a bipartisan group of seven senators, including three Republicans. On the other hand, because of the intense focus on the deficit and a growing call for tax reform, an extension of the tax credit may not be easily won. I note also that at the hearing, Senator Cornyn, a Republican from Texas, noted that many tax extenders are extended prior to adequate evaluation of their effectiveness, suggesting that prior to extension of many extenders, even expired extenders, more review needs to be done of their effectiveness. And on another note, Senator John Thune, Republican from South Dakota, noted that the wind production industry needs to be considering a phased-out or phased-down extension of the wind production tax credit. Turning to debate on the Senate floor of energy policy, as predicted in last week's podcast, the Senate failed to reach the 60 votes needed to move forward with Senate Bill 2204, the Repeal Big Oil Tax Subsidies Act. The bill was sponsored by Senator Robert Menendez and essentially was killed by a largely party-line vote of 51 to 47. Now, the bill was not expected to pass, even though it would have extended renewable energy incentives, like the production tax credit. However, it would have paid for those extensions by repealing five tax incentives for the five largest oil and gas companies. Now, the silver lining, if you can find one in a vote like this, is that before the vote, the Senate spent two days discussing energy tax policy. And during the discussion, a number of lawmakers expressed support for the production tax credit even though they eventually voted to oppose Senate Bill 2204. Now, turning to a review of the Department of Energy's stimulus spending, late last month, the House Representatives Committee on Oversight and Government Reform released a report on the Department of Energy's Loan Guarantee Program, and they held a hearing on the Department's stimulus spending. Let's first look at the committee's report. Now, as you'll probably infer from the title, The report is not complimentary of the DOE or its management of the Loan Guarantee Program. The report is titled, The Department of Energy's Disastrous Management of Loan Guarantee Programs. The report addresses the management of the Section 1705 Loan Guarantee Program. Now, the report is based in part on the Oversight and Government Reform Committee's review of internal emails that were generated during the project review and approval process. In its report, the committee says that it identified a pattern of poor management and a bias toward unconstrained lending that resulted in a high-risk, speculative, and undiversified loan portfolio that could result in a loss to taxpayers. The report also concludes that administration officials ignored warning signs that the DOE invested a disproportionate amount in solar technology, the department invested in several projects with low credit ratings, and that there's a perception that the Department of Energy misleads applicants about the status of their loan applications, thereby encouraging them to misallocate capital. Finally, the report says that the Department of Energy has provided misleading job figures. Now, let's turn to the hearing. At the hearing on March 20th, the committee addressed various loan guarantee programs, as well as energy stimulus programs that were part of the American Recovery and Reinvestment Act. At that hearing, 
Department of Energy Secretary Stephen Chu refuted some of the report's findings. Secretary Chu cited the success of several of the stimulus programs, including the Loan Guarantee Program. Now, regarding the 1705 Loan Guarantee Program, Secretary Chu said that the program is accelerating the development of commercial-scale, innovative, clean energy technologies, including the world's largest wind farm and several large solar generation facilities. Throughout the hearing, committee members questioned Secretary Chu on the report's findings. At times, the hearing became somewhat heated, and many of the representatives questioned the funding for both renewable energy and fossil fuels. Now, clearly, debate on the success or failure of the Recovery Act's energy-related stimulus programs will continue for some time. If you're interested in reading the committee's reports, as well as Secretary Chu's response, I encourage you to visit the Renewable Energy Tax Credit Resource Center at www.energytaxcredits.com. In local housing tax credit news, last week the Internal Revenue Service released its 2012 calendar year resident population estimates. Why do you care? These figures are used to determine each allocating agency's 2012 low-income housing tax credit ceilings as well as their tax-exempt private activity bond caps. This year, each state's low-income housing tax credit ceiling is the greater of $2.20 multiplied by the state's population or $2,525,000. The state's tax-exempt bond volume cap, which can be used for rental housing and a number of other uses, is the greater of $95 multiplied by the state's population or $284,560,000. Overall, based on the IRS's figures, the country's population has increased by about 0.9% since the previous year. Several states, however, saw significant population gains and declines. I should say states and other areas. And that's because the largest population gains by percentage were the Northern Mariana Islands, over 10% gain, the District of Columbia, with a gain of just over 2.6%, Texas gained 2.06%, Utah gained 1.89%, and Alaska gained 1.73%. Further, Colorado, North Dakota, Washington, Arizona, and Florida rounded out the top 10 states, territories, and insular areas for population gain. Now, there were seven areas, though, that lost residents on a year-to-year basis. These areas, American Samoa, lost 19.66% of its population. Guam lost 13.5%, and the U.S. Virgin Islands lost 3.14%. Further, Puerto Rico, Rhode Island, Michigan, and Maine all lost population, albeit less than 1%. Now, by nominal number of residents, Texas, California, Florida, Georgia, and North Carolina, that's Texas, California, Florida, Georgia, and North Carolina, had the largest increases in estimated population. Guam, Puerto Rico, American Samoa, Michigan, and the U.S. Virgin Islands, as you can guess, had the largest decreases. Now, I also note that there are 13 states or areas that will receive the small state minimum this year. If you're interested in looking at the actual population figures, simply go online to www.taxcredithousing.com, go to the housing resource listing of IRS guidance, and it's known as 2012-22. Now, turning to HUD, 
Last week, HUD proposed a rule that would modify Section 202 and 811 program regulations. The most significant part of the proposed rule deals with program regulations that govern mixed finance developments. In other words, those projects that receive funding from both the Low Income Housing Tax Credit and Section 202 and 811 funding programs. The change is aimed at increasing the private development community's involvement in creating mixed finance properties by removing restrictions on the portions of developments that are not funded through capital advances. For example, HUD proposes allowing the release of capital advance funds upon project completion and allowing those funds to be used to pay off bridge or construction financing. This practice is currently prohibited under existing regulations. HUD says that these modifications would permit broader flexibility in the design of Section 202 and 811 units and allow mixed finance developers to use the loan housing tax credit more effectively. Other proposed changes are described as general updates and improvements to the Section 202 and 811 program. This proposal is the first part of a larger Section 202 and 811 regulatory reform effort, which will include the implementation of changes made by the Frank Melville Supportive Housing Investment Act and changes made by the Section 202 Supportive Housing for the Elderly Act. HUD said it expects to publish a subsequent rule focusing on statutory changes later this year. The agency, HUD, will accept comments on the proposed rule through May 29th. You can download a copy of the rule at www.hudresourcecenter.com. And if you have any questions about the proposal or the Section 202 and 811 programs, I encourage you to contact my partner, Susan Wilson, in our Austin, Texas office. In historic tax credit news, I want to start with a quick hat tip to Attorney Harold Burke for sharing the news that oral arguments in the historic Boardwalk Hall case in the Third Circuit in Philadelphia has been delayed. As listeners may recall, in a notice dated January 27th, the court scheduled the case to be heard on April 20th. According to Mr. Burke, oral arguments are now scheduled for June 25th. If you have any questions about this case's significance for your historic tax credit development, please contact my partner, Tom Bosha, in our Cleveland, Ohio office. Now, another preservation news, Ruth Pierpoint, president of the National Conference of State Historic Preservation Officers, testified before the House of Representatives Committee on Appropriations, specifically the Subcommittee on Interior, Environment, and Related Agencies. Her testimony was provided last week. She spoke about fiscal year 2013 appropriations for State Historic Preservation Offices and the Historic Preservation Grant Program. The National Conference of State Historic Preservation Officers is requesting $46.95 million for the State Historic Preservation Offices and $10 million for a Historic Preservation Grant Program to be run by those offices. In her testimony, Pierpoint cites the economic benefits of historic preservation projects, including those that use the historic tax credit. She said that in 2011, nearly 1,000 historic tax credit projects were started and that each project, on average, created 55 jobs. She testified that the federal historic tax credit program helps increase property values, protect landmarks, and upgrades downtowns. She also noted that in 2011, the historic tax credit spurred about $4 billion in private investment, created over 55,000 skilled local jobs, 
and financed nearly 7,500 low to moderate income housing units. A copy of Ms. Pierpoint's testimony and other information from the hearing can be found online at appropriations.house.gov. Now in state tax credit news, the Minnesota Department of Revenue last month clarified the circumstances under which historic rehabilitation tax credits can be assigned. Under the state tax credit program, a person who receives a tax credit certificate can either claim the credit or assign it to another taxpayer. The department's position, as outlined in Revenue Notice 12-06, is that only the original, that's right, only the original recipient of the tax credit certificate, that's the person listed on the certificate, only the original recipient can assign the certificate to one other taxpayer. I emphasize one because the notice specifies that the credit may only be assigned once. However, the notice says that a distribution of a credit from a flow-through entity to its owners is not considered a credit assignment. This means that tax credits would be allowed to flow through multiple layers of ownership by flow-through entities without violating the prohibition against more than one assignment. The notice says that the partner or owner of the flow-through entity does not need to be listed on the certificate to receive the credit in this manner. Examples of how these rules would apply to various situations are contained in the revenue notice, and that notice is available at taxes.state-mn.us. For more information about the assignment and allocation of state tax credits, I encourage you to contact my partner, Charlie Ruda, in our Boston office. Turning east to Boston, Massachusetts, and you can also get information on this topic from Charlie Ruda in our Boston office, the Commonwealth of Massachusetts is considering five-year sunsets for several of its tax credits, including the State Historic Tax Credit. Now, as reported in an online exclusive in Commonwealth Magazine, Governor Deval Patrick's budget chief last week presented a proposal that would sunset, yes, sunset eight tax credit programs every five years unless they're renewed by the legislature. The eight tax credits include the Historic Rehabilitation Tax Credit, low-income housing tax credit, and economic development incentive program. Under the proposal, the eight tax credits would be reviewed for effectiveness every five years. The review would apply to tax credits where a taxpayer only needs to document qualifying activity and cost to claim the tax credit. The proposal also contained clawback provisions that would help the state reclaim its investment if a recipient failed to meet the goals of the tax credit program. The governor's budget chief presented these recommendations to the state's Tax Expenditure Commission during a March 27th hearing. The Tax Expenditure Commission, which was established by the fiscal year 2012 budget bill and began meeting last October, is studying the state's $24 billion in annual tax expenditures. The commission is set to submit recommendations to the legislature on the administrative efficiency and cost benefit of tax expenditures by April 30th. The commission delayed voting on the recommendations in order to study the proposal further. The group is scheduled to meet today to further discuss the issue, and at the time of this recording, the group plans to meet at least two more times to finalize its recommendations before the April 30th deadline. In New Market Tax Credit news, last week, the CD5 posted an updated New Market Tax Credit Allocation Agreement template on its website. The template for the final allocation agreement provides boilerplate provisions of the terms and conditions that may be entered into between the CDFI fund and an allocatee. Now, the exact terms and conditions of each specific MTC allocation is set forth in the allocation agreement that is actually executed 
by the CDFI fund and each allocatee. Now, the prior draft allocation agreement excluded subordinated debt and loan loss reserve requirements in this Section 3.2F list of indicia flexible products. Fortunately, this revised template has been updated to include both indicia of flexible products. I should say both as indicia of flexible products. So if you received an award from the 2011 round, you should have received an updated allocation agreement. In the meantime, you can find a copy of the template online at www.newmarketscredits.com. And if you have any questions, I'd encourage you to contact my partner, Brad Elphick, who heads up the New Market Tax Credit Working Group. Now, before I wrap up this week's podcast, I did want to remind listeners to save the date for Novograd & Company's popular Spring New Market Tax Credit Conference. This year, the conference will be held on June 7th and 8th in Washington, D.C. Now, we're fine-tuning the agenda right now, so if there's a particular topic you'd like our panelists to address, please let us know. Send an email to cpas at novoco.com. I'd also like to let you know that the event will be kicked off with a keynote address by Representative Pat Tiberi on Thursday morning, June 7th. Representative Tiberi is chairman of the House Ways and Means Subcommittee on House Select Revenue Measures. I look forward to your suggestions for topics and look forward to seeing you in Washington, D.C. in June. Well, that brings me to the end of this week's report. Please join me again next week for another Tax Credit Tuesday. This is Michael Novogratik, and I'll be back next week. Thanks for listening. This weekly podcast has been brought to you by Novogratik and Company, LLP. Archived discussions are available online at www.novoco.com slash podcast or by subscribing to the Novogratik Report on tax credits in iTunes. Novogratik and Company, LLP, is a national certified public accounting and consulting firm with 13 offices nationwide. Learn more about our professional services at www.novoco.com.